What is the sound of one hand clapping? Did you hear it? Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about that and so much more. We're going to be talking with Marsha Montenegro. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Welcome back, guys. So today we're going to be speaking with Marcia Montenegro uh, with Christian Answers for the New Age, her website, ChristianAnswersForTheNewAge.org. We're going to be talking about Zen Buddhism. Now, uh, in the past, I have done a series on Theravada Buddhism. That would be the foundation of Buddhism. That would be the narrow path of Buddhism that... uh, the Buddha himself taught, okay? That would be his teachings. Uh, Zen Buddhism is a wider path. It would be uh, in the same category as what is referred to as Mahayana Buddhism. There's this wider path, uh, Mahayana, where there are many different types or flavors of Buddhism packaged in that one (laughs) name, Mahayana. It's kind of like you have fundamental Christianity, and then on the outside, you've got all the cults, all the different uh, flavors, uh, different movements who have taken and borrowed bits and pieces of the foundational understanding of Christianity, and then have applied their own uh, wild and crazy ideas to the foundational teachings. I hope that makes sense. And uh, as we progress today, and there will be a part two of of this podcast as well, uh, you're going to come to realize just how different Zen Buddhism is from uh, the foundational Theravada Buddhism. Some of you uh, may fall out of your chair and have a seizure on the floor, uh, as I did right somewhere in the middle of the interview. I I had a I've I've had a very difficult time wrapping my brain around uh, the ideas and teachings of Zen Buddhism because because they're so counter logic they're so non linear that my mind often just can't take it <laughs> but uh, this is going to be a fun podcast Marsha welcome back to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Hello, Mike. It's really great to be on with you again. Praise God, yes. So uh, just to let my listeners in on it, we've had quite the fun fiasco here over the last couple of days just trying to get <laughs> Marsha on. Uh, my Boy. Skype software stopped working. Then my Pamela recording software started uh, glitching up. I got all that fixed. But then Pamela told me that th- this is the software I use that my my registration code no longer worked, so I had to re-register, then I got it all working, and then my microphone stopped working. So it's it's been quite a fiasco. It's it's almost been humorous uh, just to see all the stuff go down. But um, yeah. whatever the case, uh, friends, we got Marsha back. We're going to be talking uh, today about Zen Buddhism. So uh, we'll start right off here with uh, Marsha. What is the sound of one hand clapping? <laughs> that is that question is called a koan. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce it, K-O-A-N, which um, is a question that seemingly has, it seems, it seems to be illogical, an illogical question or a question that cannot have a logical answer and the purpose of that is to push you outside the boundaries of rational thinking because rational thinking is part of the mind and the mind is a barrier because it's part of the impermanent reality um, that blocks you from seeing the true nature of reality um, so that, you know, it doesn't have, it, it, basically that question doesn't have 
it doesn't have a logical answer for sure because it's not even a logical question. But um, a lot of times these um, questions like that, the answers are not in words, in fact. The answers are in some kind of realization. The uh, Zen master will ask a question and then people pondering and meditating, uh, or some of them, will suddenly see what the what the answer is in terms of what the question is pointing out. It's not really asking what is the sound of one hand clapping. It's, it's, it's prodding you to think in another way. And so when that, if that happens, then the person suddenly will have an insight that was provoked by that question. So the answers aren't in words. It's not like a riddle that can be figured out. And that's a certain kind of, of, of Zen um, that's called Rinzai Zen, R-I-N-Z-A-I. And the other kind of Zen is Soto, S-O-T-O, which emphasizes um, sitting meditation called Zazen. And it's probably the more common type of Zen meditation in the United States, which is what I know more about um, than the kind, you know, than what they do in Japan uh, or other countries where Zen is practiced. But, you know, the United States, at least in my experience, and I was involved with it for about 12 years, it's the, I didn't never heard anybody ask any coins or anything like that. So it was the type of Zen, Soto Zen. Wow. Okay. That was a good answer. I probably should have started with, I I should have started with what is Zen? And I suppose even, you know, I've already done a a, a decently long series on Theravada Buddhism. How does it differ from uh, Theravada? Yes. Theravada Buddhism, which is mostly found um, in Southeast Asia, in Sri Lanka, Burma, and Thailand, and means um, word or doctrine of the earth, is a school of Buddhism that is based on the earliest or the allegedly earliest teachings of Buddha from the Pali, P-A-L-I, a language canon, um, also sometimes called the Three Baskets. And this is considered the oldest record of Buddha's teachings, and they, they focus everything on that, is these um, early teachings, and they also have a focus on uh, the path of being a monk. And only monks can be enlightened. So uh, that's Theravada. And that is one of the big schools of Buddhism. And the uh, another big school of Buddhism, actually there's really only two, Theravada and Mahayana. And Mahayana Buddhism includes, by the way, Tibetan Buddhism, which is somewhat different from other forms of Buddhism. And I was actually involved in that initially for um, a somewhat a short time, but I did a lot of reading. So Mahayana Buddhism is mostly found in um, Tibet, China, uh, Japan, Korea, and further north of the countries where you have Theravada. And the emphasis in Mahayana is that you don't, you don't have to be a monk to become enlightened. It's also for um, the laity. And there's a focus on being um, enlightened for the purpose of helping all sentient beings uh, to find the path to enlightenment. So that's another difference. And a third important difference from Theravada is that Mahayana Buddhism accepts later Buddhist teachers, like the like, um, Buddhist teachings, like the sutras. So um, Theravada Buddhism does not accept those later teachings, and Mahayana does. It focuses more on everyone being able to be enlightened and focuses on becoming enlightened for the purpose of bringing everyone to enlightenment. And those are three characteristics of Mahayana that are not part of Theravada. And Mahayana Buddhism is more what you find Westerners involved in. Um, so when you find people, especially like myself, 
the way I was involved in the New Age, and I was interested in Hinduism and Buddhism. So when you find Westerners or people who are New Age and they're incorporating Buddhism, it's Mahayana Buddhism, because it doesn't work for them to do Theravada Buddhism, because you'd have to become a monk. So it's not it's not a, a, friend, a Western-friendly uh, form of Buddhism for most people, but they can try to follow uh, a path in Mahayana Buddhism. Now, Zen Buddhism is all is part of Mahayana Buddhism. It's a, a what you might call a sect or a school of Mahayana Buddhism, and that came about. Um, mostly it started back around the 6th century, but it came about mostly in the 12th and 13th centuries. That's when the Rinzai and Soto Zen schools were founded. And so it was much better than the earlier forms of Buddhism. Yeah, yeah. And and do you find generally that New Agers are more prone to allowing elements of Zen? into uh, their their belief system? Because I, I certainly found that in my little travels in the New Age. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's very appealing to a lot of people. Now, you do have New Agers, you know, the New Age spectrum, which we talked about on a previous three-part podcast. You have a spectrum, so you will have a lot of New Agers who are not interested in Buddhism. They may, for example, stick to Hindu teachings and Hindu practices, or you may have new leaders who are on the thought spectrum where they are doing affirmations and believe in self-empowerment and believe that they can succeed at anything and have some new agers who kind of stick to that area are not interested in Buddhism or Hinduism. And then you have quite a number of new agers who are drawn to Buddhism, either to Tibetan Buddhism or to Zen. It's usually one or the other. And uh, Tibetan Buddhism, of course, has become more popular in this country because of the Dalai Lama and several celebrities who follow him and promote him, although it actually started before the Dalai Lama came to this country. There was a Buddhist, uh, Tibetan Buddhist teacher here, um, and he had followers before the Dalai Lama came. So between the two of them, that sort of established an interest in Tibetan Buddhism. And then you have the Zen Buddhist uh, followers who are following Zen, which is different uh, than Tibetan Buddhism. Although some of the, of course, the core Buddhist teachings remain the same. But then there's a lot of extra stuff that's added on in Tibetan Buddhism that Zen Buddhists would not accept or follow and it had and so each school of buddhism has its own teachers i think that maybe one thing a lot of people don't know at least in the u.s is that there are many schools of buddhism and it's not monolithic so it's not like just one religion that is exactly the same and that's why you have people who might be into zen and people who might be into tibetan buddhism in the united states But it is appealing because there is something about Zen Buddhism I found that appealed to a lot of more intellectual type people. Now, I do not consider myself very intellectual, but I I wasn't drawn to Zen (laughs) Um, because it's almost like a counterintuitive religion and it doesn't give easy answers uh, and you have to really put a lot aside, like you have to put aside things that you previously thought and believed, uh, previous ways of thinking and seeing reality. And you have to do that in order to get into Buddhist ideas. And I think that a lot of kind of intellectual people enjoy that because it's so different from what they normally encounter. Right. And from what I've, I've encountered with Zen Buddhism, there's almost this uh, counter- logic or a non-thinking emphasis that's put into it. I mean, just like the Cohen that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, what is the sound of one hand clapping? It's, it, it's, it's meant to kind of derail your thought process and get you into this, this more of a mindlessness state. Now they generally, I think they call it mindfulness. Right. Um, but, uh, 
Okay, I know we're kind of totally derailing from the notes here, but um, <laughs> one of the one of the things that uh, I keep seeing over and over and over is that people want to reach a, a state of satori, like they want to discover their Buddha nature. What is that? Yes, and 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 before I I uh, say more about that, let me just point out that. Zen Buddhism, the way it was imported to the United States and the teachers who came along after it became appealing to a lot of people, the Zen Buddhism may not be taught exactly the same here as it is, for example, in Japan. So um, there, you know, there may be some ways of expressing it that are almost new age, or certainly the terms that are used are not terms that a Zen Buddhist in Japan would use. So I just want to point out that when I'm talking here about the ideas and the beliefs, some of what I'm saying a Zen Buddhist in Japan would agree with, but some of the things or the words I'm using they may not agree with. Uh, but what I'm expressing is Zen Buddhism here in the United States primarily and how People use certain terms like Buddha nature, and I'm not saying they don't use that in Japan, but that's more common here to talk about um, finding who you really are is, well, here's the thing, your real self doesn't exist. Your self, your individual self is impermanent. Now, this is true in Buddhism, period, all forms, as far as I know. So the the self is impermanent, and what you think is your individual self is really an attachment. You have attached to an idea or an identity, a false identity of who you are. And that is because you were born, um, you were born. And so you were born into a body with a a mind. You had experiences in your life, um, teachings in your life that formed who you are. And all of those things cause you to believe that you are, you know, Michael, or you are, you know, or I am Marsha. And those are all, those are all like, that's a false identity. So part of the purpose of Buddhism is for you to realize that. And the reason that's important is because by being attached to this so-called identity, you will cause rebirth. Because rebirth happens due to attack, false reality, and come back and and suffering. Um, Buddha taught that every suffering in this life and, and suffering is caused. You know, continues as long as you keep coming back into this life, you're going to suffer. So the goal is to get out of the cycle of rebirth, so that you no longer have suffering and that's kind of a um a very um you know quick summary of (laughs) the view so the buddha nature more or less describes the true if i can use the, the the new age term true self which would be uh basically kind of the non self so here you go with a kind of paradoxical phrasing of zen so the real self is the non self it's it's called um, an and not Atman because in Hinduism Atman means the divine self, um, and in Zen or Buddhism also it's an Atman which means not self. So you can even find this on online. There's even little like images of it. <laughs> so not the not self. So basically you are not a self, but you are this bigger self, which is the Buddha nature, which is the nature of true reality. That may sound confusing to people, but that's one of the reasons a lot of people are attracted to it, because it sounds it sounds so intriguing to some people. Okay, yeah, and um, boy, that that's interesting. So it's not so much, Buddha nature is not like a Oh, you're going to discover the God, your God self, you know, the deity within you. Right. It's more no. like, 
you are discovering more of this uh, not self, your true Buddha self, I guess. Um, going back to Theravada, the whole idea is to stop, stop suffering and to escape the wheel of samsara, this wheel of rebirth. Mm-hmm. And you can see in Zen, it's, it's some of that is carried over. You're trying to discover your Buddha nature, which um, I guess somewhat has ties to Theravada Buddhism in that you're trying to um, escape your own self-attachments. You're trying to reach a non-self, uh, unattached state where you really, oh, I'm having a hard time explaining this. You really don't desire anything. Right. Desire. Right. A, a, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, you're, no. It's, right. It's desire, desire, Buddha taught to suffer. And when we hear the word desire, we tend to think of having this craving for something or this strong you know, oh, I really, really wish I could have, you know, a, a $50,000 car or something. But but when but when he says desire, it just means, it really means kind of an attachment, a grasping at anything. So a grasping at this life and the things in life, you know, it certainly includes that. But it's much more than what we think of as desire. So the reason this causes suffering is because you can never have all that you are desiring or all that you think you should have or all that you think you will have so there's always a constant disappointment so this this sets you up for constant suffering um i do want to say something theravada and 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 mahayana buddhism are going to agree on these core teachings they're not different in that their main difference is in the way it's taught and who it's taught to so theravada is focused on you know, the monastic path, and also sticks to the early Buddhist teachings. So the Mahayana Buddhism has more um, texts that they, they draw from because they accept later teachings. So they have additional material to draw on, but the core ideas are still the same. The basic Four Noble Truths, you know, that there is suffering and desire causes suffering, and um, there is a way out of this suffering. So they're all going to agree on the core principles, but then they, you know, they split off from there on what teachings they accept and the way that they do it and what they emphasize. And so Zen very much is into uh, meditation as the main way to realize. Now, when you, you said to realize your Buddha nature, but I don't think they would say that because it's not your Buddha nature. It's just Buddha nature or the nature, uh, the true nature of reality. And, and what that really means, it doesn't actually have anything to do with Buddha. Um, it, has to, it has to do with the real nature of reality is formlessness. So I like to use the term formlessness and form because I think it, it makes it more clear. So everything in this life is form. So, you know, you're in a body, you have a mind, you, you're in a house, you know, you have a job, you have friends, you have a, a wife or husband, etc. These are all forms in this reality. It's all, everything is form. Um, and this is trapping you and in, in the cycle of rebirth, which continues to cause you suffering. So the opposite of this, of course, is formlessness. And that is the true nature of reality. It is where there is no form. And I think that way maybe makes it a little more clear um, for people. And I've, I've seen those terms used by Buddhists, so form and formlessness. And there's a lot of um, teachings in this country. A lot of people be surprised that there's teachings by Zen Buddhists in secular culture because it, can, it appears very secular, it doesn't seem to be religious, because there is no supreme God in Buddhism, and Buddha never talked about God. So Buddhism can be very secular, so a lot of secular-oriented people who want some kind of spirituality are drawn to Zen Buddhism, because it doesn't seem to them like a religion, and there is no God to deal with. Um, so that's another appeal of Zen Buddhism. 
fascinating. So they would not they would not say that there is even an impersonal God. Yeah, no, they won't they won't say there is or isn't. Um, now I have read that there are some Buddhists who think there is a God, but going to and there's some forms of Buddhism like the Pure Land Buddhism, which I don't know too much about, but it came about I think even later than Zen Buddhism. Um, has to do with this, the figure of the compassionate Buddha, Buddha that you appeal to this compassionate Buddha, um, you know, to get out of the suffering. And some people think it sounds kind of like Christianity, and some people think it sounds like Christianity because it was influenced by Christians who went to Japan. So I have not researched that, so I'm not going to say any more than that <laughs> because I'm not going to speculate <laughs> on that. I haven't, I, I, because I'm not really, in, I'm not that interested in that. I'm more interested, you know, my my ministry deals with the New Age and the occult, mostly in the United States and certainly in the Western, you know, in Western thinking and Western countries. So I I can't spend a lot of time going far afield into something like Pure Land Buddhism. But there are these other uh, forms of Buddhism that, that sound very different from Zen that came much later. And, um, but, the, but the Zen Buddhists, um, they, they, formlessness is the free, being free from suffering. And I, now I can't remember what you asked me. You asked me something and I went off into blind Buddhism. <laughs> no. That was <laughs> what happened. That was really, and that was fascinating. It's okay. Am I getting this right? Then it's almost like, and maybe I'm I'm seeing this for the first time. I don't know, but it's almost as if in Zen Buddhism, you're striving for this formlessness, this non-self, to end your suffering. But in Theravada Buddhism, Buddha was trying to end the suffering of those around him by ending his physical attachments, his desires. Well, he Is was right? teaching. Well, he was, he supposedly became enlightened and these were the, the four noble truths were the things he realized when he became enlightened. And that's what he taught. He wasn't really trying to help people. He was teaching what he thought they needed to know in order to escape suffering. So, um, it, it, there, there's not really a distinction between that and Zen Buddhism. They both agree with that. They both agree that this life is suffering and that the only way out of this is to become detached. So you you become detached, which means you detach from your desires and your attachment to mm. false reality, you see. And that that is the way that you get there. But you don't, you can't really try. It's not a program. It's not like, okay, now I'm going to do these steps. And then I'm going to do these steps. It's, you, in fact, they would tell you that would keep you from it. And that's kind of one of the, I think, one of the contradictions of it is that you can't really have these desires. But yet you have to, if you're going forward towards enlightenment, obviously you think that's what you should do. So that in a way is a desire. But um, right. you can't, you really can't get away from that. Oh, I remember now what you asked me, asked me about, they, what you said they wouldn't even say there's an impersonal God. I know. Well, this is what happens when you start talking about Zen. You end up jumping all over the place because it's not very organized. You know, it has the, the thinking in Zen Buddhism is not like uh, uh, the way we're used to thinking in, in Western spirituality, I guess I would, as a way to put it. So Yeah, it's not very linear. No, it's not. So uh, Buddha supposedly never said anything about God. He never, or he may have said one thing, something about it not being, you know, I, you know, this is, it's questionable what he said, because here's another interesting fact. None of Buddha's teachings were put down in writing until 500, about 500 years after his death, depending on when you right. want to um, say he lived, and there's disagreement on that. But it was after Christ um, had already come that after Jesus, you know, had come to earth or incarnated, um, that these writings were, were put, you know, the, the teachings were put in writing. So a lot of people don't realize that. So that means that for about 500 years, 
nothing was in writing and all the teachings were kind of going around orally through different people taking them to different areas of Asia. And um, it's, so it's questionable what did Buddha really say and there is no real strong historical evidence for anyone who is the Buddha. Um, you know, there's uh, a figure that is often considered to be the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, but then you also have other Buddhas that come along later in Mahayana Buddhism. Um, and what else I was going to say about the God, the not, not being a God, is this is very interesting. Even though technically in Buddhism there is not a God and certainly not a creator God or a supreme God, since humans, I think, naturally have a default towards wanting some kind of godlike figure, you know, to look to for strength or help or, or to believe in, whatever that godlike figure may turn out to be for them. Because of that, even though there is no God, there are deities. For example, in Tibetan Buddhism, there are a lot of deities, these divine beings, and who have power. And some are good and some are bad. In Zen Buddhism... Um, and, and, and other forms of Mahayana Buddhism, there are bodhisattvas. And bodhisattvas are enlightened beings, okay, humans, who became enlightened and, and went on. I mean, they died. And instead of going on to the, the final state of nirvana, they remain in some kind of, I'm not sure if they describe exactly where they are, but they're in some kind of realm uh, where they are helping people become enlightened. So the bodhisattvas uh, sometimes end up being like God and end up being worshipped. So it's very interesting. It's a really complicated, Buddhism is actually really, really complicated. And I, I want to just state for the record, I am not an expert. <laughs> and I am not a scholar, so nobody get mad at me. <laughs> I am going by my years and following um, uh, some Zen Buddhist teachings, reading a lot of Zen Buddhist writings, both Eastern and Western, and, you know, the people that I was kind of learning from that I was surrounded with. So I know that I have the basics um, correct, and I know some of the other things, um, but I can't. You know, I can't go beyond what I know, so I can't talk too much about um, the origin of things, certain things, or what they would say about the bodhisattvas. I don't know what they would say in Japan, for example. But I know I have read that a lot of these bodhisattvas become sort of godlike figures, or in the case of Westerners, they don't really see them as gods, but they see them as guides, almost like a yeah, spirit God. guide. Yeah, or like an ascended master. Yes. Yes, they would not use that term, and they would for sure say, no, no, it's not a spirit guide. It's not an ascended master at all. It's completely different. But in a way, that's kind of what it is. And um, it's kind of interesting how this more or less godless religion would, you know, all of a sudden these bodhisattvas <laughs> pop up as sort of these gods. now, And they do believe in... Um, these divine beings, these demigods. It's um, here's another complicated teaching that I am not too familiar with, but I know there's, I think there's nine hells in Buddhism. Now I'm not sure if Zen accepts this or not, but in Mahayana Buddhism and maybe Theravada, I'm not sure. I do not know a lot about Theravada teachings. There are nine hells, and so you can go to one of these hells after you die, but it's not permanent because there's rebirth. And um, there's these different states uh, that you can be in. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's always in hell that you're in these states, but there's something called hungry ghost, which is not like a ghost like we think of in the West, like the spirit of a dead person, which, of course, doesn't exist anyway. So it's not that kind of ghost. It's like somebody who's, I think it, it's somebody who's still craving, still attached to this life. There's, um, there are these demigods, so they're partly godlike. However, and this is really important to understand, this is true in both Tibetan Buddhism 
and in Zen Buddhism. In fact, the Dalai Lama, I don't I know we're not doing Tibetan Buddhism, but the Dalai Lama emphasizes <laughs> this a lot. Um, in order to be enlightened, you must be born human. So if you're in one of these other states, like a demigod or a hungry ghost, and then there's there's a few others, if you're in one of those states, um, in between your lives, I mean you can't you can't gain enlightenment. So the when the Dalai Lama says we have to have compassion for all sentient beings, I, I assume a lot of Americans think he, he's talking about um, humans, and maybe some think he, well, he's talking about humans and animals. We have to be compassionate towards humans and animals. That's not what he means. He means we need to, to go on the path of enlightenment to help all, all beings, all humans, animals and these creatures in the nine hills and the demigods and the hungry ghosts, they need to be born human so that they can get on the path to enlightenment. So see the words that we hear in the, in the West are not what they mean when they're saying them as a Buddhist. Okay. So, wow. All right. Sorry, I'm just, I'm trying to catch up here. You, I've done a lot of studying on this you subject. You got me started. You got me started. This is what happened. <laughs> My mind has exploded. Okay. So, in other words, you can, you can die in this life and you're going to be reincarnated. They wouldn't use that word, there though. Is, you would, uh, what, uh, well, I, I know in Theravada, you'd kind of re-enter the wheel of samsara or something, but. Yeah, they call it, they call it rebirth. And it's because, see, if you don't rebirth. have a real self, then you can't really be reincarnated. Like in Hinduism, it's it, reincarnation is, is a Hindu teaching. And, and a lot of people maybe don't know Buddha was raised as a Hindu. So he came out of Hinduism and he was rejecting he wasn't really trying to start a new religion. He was trying to reform Hinduism. Like he didn't like the caste system and he didn't like all the gods. And he didn't believe that you, you have to be an ascetic or do all these extreme things to find enlightenment. He was repulsed by all that and he was trying to kind of reform Hinduism, what he thought was getting to the essence of things. So a lot of people don't realize that he was actually really a Hindu. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, so um, in Hinduism, you have reincarnation because you do have this self, you have this individual self that comes back um, and is born, you know, in another body, maybe another place, another, and certainly another time. However, in the Buddhist rebirth, it's a little more, it's a little more complicated and sort of fuzzier because there is no real individual self. So then how does the self have rebirth if it doesn't really exist? Well, the, the, best, the only explanation I can remember hearing and reading is that they're kind of these essences of, of you, you know, that's not enlightened, that gets put together again in another lifetime. But it's not hmm. self. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really make any rational sense as far as I understand it. And so there is still this kind of rebirth, but it's not quite the same as, or not at all the same as the Hindu reincarnation. Yet there is a rebirth because you're trying to escape these cycles of rebirth. That's the whole purpose. So there is something that is coming back that has something to do with you. Um, but what it exactly is, <laughs> you know, there's, oh, well, there's this. There's the, the five, although I'm not sure this would be rebirth, um, reborn. But um, there's the five aggregates, the five aggregates, which are your thinking, your feeling, your sensations, um, your body, uh, your experiences. These are all things, um, and they may use different terms, but that's the basic idea. This is what makes you think you are an individual. And so when the, the kind of the essence of you, of you that's trying to become enlightened is reborn you get attached you come back of course in a body and then you have these five aggregates there's another word for them i can't think of right now oh skandhas skanda is the other word s-k-a-n-d-h-a the five skandhas are five aggregates 
and this is who you are. And you become attached to those skandhas or aggregates, your body, your experiences, your feelings, your thoughts. And you think that you're an individual because of those things. Huh. Wow. Okay. And and I and I'm not trying to play stump the chump, <laughs> but I, I my brain is exploding here. So there there clearly okay there is this this rebirth that's happening, but it is not totally a a a, a person's self that's being rebirthed, but yet there appears to be some type of uh, spiritual rules at play, right? I mean, you're, yeah. you continue to be rebirth, yeah. uh, reborn, I guess. Do Zen Buddhists ever discuss or speculate or have any theology around what is governing? You know, what is, how did these rules get set in place? What is governing it? Is it, is it all of us as a collective or do they even talk about that? There, they have stories about how everything came into being. And it involves okay. usually um, some kind of attachment to form. Now, I'm, I'm, I can't remember exactly. The, I heard something when I was getting interested in Buddhism. It, it was initially Tibetan Buddhism. And I heard a story. I used to go weekly to these Tibetan Buddhist meditation and teaching sessions in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I was living at the time. And uh, they were led, these people were followers, uh, not of the Dalai Lama. It was the first guy who came, Choigam Trungpa, who I think um, died. Well, he did die. I know he died. Um, but at the mm. time, he was still alive. And he had his center in Boulder, Colorado. And a lot of people who live in oh. Boulder, Colorado may know about the Naropa Institute. And Choigam Trungpa, who was called the bad boy of Buddhism, for several rather unsavory reasons, um, he was the leader of these people that I was going to to learn from. And they actually, the very first time I went, um, I was shown how to do the meditation, their form of Tibetan Buddhist meditation. And then I went and heard these lectures. And I remember one of the lectures had to do with how the world came about and the world of form. And it had to do with... Um, I think it was Hanuman, the monkey god. Now, he's from Hinduism. Um, and Right. Yeah, what I should say here is that Tibetan Buddhism has retained a lot of Hindu teachings, which other forms of Buddhism did not. So that's one thing that makes Tibetan Buddhism very different. They do have, they kind of retain some Hindu practices and teachings um, in, their, in their religion that you will not find, or at least find normally, for example, in Zen. So um, this this monkey god or something played around and got attached to things. And I and like I say, I can't remember the story very well. Um, but somehow then there was form and then you get attached to form. This actually reminds me a lot of some of the things I've read about Gnosticism that mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. similar in that we were all spirits with God in heaven. There were all these spirits with God in heaven and or well wherever god was and then uh the bad god the demiurge created a world or created some kind of form and then the spirits got attracted to it or he sent them there or it was something like that and then they got attached to these forms the bodies and they forgot they were spirits and so this is a little to me it's very it's somewhat similar and I wonder sometimes and actually I've, I heard a lecture one time from a guy who was a scholar on Gnosticism and he said he thought Gnosticism actually came from Eastern religions because there's so many similarities which I thought I've never forgotten that because I, I think he may be right and he may not be the only one who thinks that but you know he's the one the first person I ever heard say that so um, there's this whole idea behind it is this attachment to form. And once that starts, then it, it just the cycle kind of continues. Um, how it ended up with people being born into bodies, you know, every I'm not sure. I'm sure there is an explanation somewhere, or probably several explanations, <laughs> depending on which school of Buddhism you're gonna go, you know, you're gonna go investigate. Um, 
So those those areas of Buddhism, I'm not, I'm not, I either didn't learn too much about or I wasn't really interested in, you know, my interest was in what is happening now, what is, you know, reality, you know, what is the the purpose of doing this meditation and, and where, how do you get out of a false, you know, a false reality. So I, I now, when I say all that, I was not a pure Zen Buddhist because I also retained some Hindu ideas. I actually was involved in some Hindu teachings before Tibetan Buddhism. And so I picked up a little bit along the way, you know, this is what you do in the new age. So I, I kind of kept the reincarnation idea from Hinduism because that made the most, most sense to me. And then there were some Tibetan Buddhist ideas I retained. And then when I got into Zen, what I mostly adopted from Zen was the meditation method and the idea that, you know, your thinking was a barrier to spiritual insight and that you had to detach because in my mind, then you would have reincarnation. I never really understood the rebirth idea, so I just hung on to the reincarnation. (laughs) 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 It's very typical of New Age, you know, because you just kind of forge your own spiritual path. And Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. took what I understood and what seemed to work for me, and that was my little path, you know. But the Zen, a lot, I I was in the Zen Buddhist, um, you know, environment in terms of, what spiritual material I was reading the longest. So in a way, mm-hmm. those those ideas st- have stuck with me much more strongly than the things I learned in, in the Hinduism or the Tibetan Buddhism. Although since I became a Christian, I've gone back and studied more when I've done presentations and talks. And when, one year I actually went up and heard the Dalai Lama when he was speaking at Cornell, and then I gave a talk on Tibetan Buddhism at a church. So I, I did a lot of reading before that happened uh, to prepare. So I've, you know, relearned or learned some things maybe I didn't even know then. So um, I may be able to say more now about Tibetan Buddhism than if, you know, than I could have even then. Uh, but then I was definitely very drawn to it. Seemed more simplified. Tibetan Buddhism is very complicated, um, and it actually has a lot of occult elements. Zen Buddhism seemed very clean to me. It was very clean. It was kind of like the bottom line kind of idea, although it's actually not simple. So for whatever reason, I was drawn to that more than uh, the Hindu, getting deeply involved in Hinduism or Tibetan Buddhism. All right. That sounds like a good place to stop for today. Uh, Next week, we'll pick up where we left off here today with more of Zen Buddhism with with Marsha Montenegro. Again, her website, uh, christiananswersforthenewage.org, christiananswersforthenewage.org. Check it out. So are any of you guys out there twitching yet? (laughs) This is a very confusing belief system. It's so counter logic. It's it's something that uh, we in the West really have to try hard to um, figure out. And what's so difficult, too, is as we're trying to figure it out, we're using reason and logic, which, my friends, uh, we should be doing. Correct? Amen? I mean, any belief system that you're going to base your life off of, I mean, you're going to devote your whole life to some type of worldview, some belief system. Should it not make sense? Should it not be something that you can think about, reason through, and say, yes, this is why I'm going to uh, follow after this belief system. This is why I'm going to uh, devote my life to this particular uh, thought process. And it makes sense to me that you would devote your life to something that uh, you can trace back, that you can, that has a foundation. It is a narrative that covers all the bases. And does that make sense? You can say, yes, this is how the world started. This is how the universe started. Um, this is why I believe in uh, this God, okay? And I know in Zen Buddhism, there is no God, which also doesn't make sense. 
I would uh, I would say that uh, there is either a God or there is no God. And if there is no God, there has to be an expl- explanation as to why all of this is. Okay? It's, it's kind of an either-or proposition in my mind. Uh, if... If there is a God, let's find out who he is and what he wants, okay? If there is no God, then we have to resort to naturalistic explanations, right? So you're stuck with things like evolution, this, that, and the other, and everything is materialistic. But in a Zen worldview, you're going to need to, as far as I can, I can, I can see, and like Marsha explained, it doesn't appear that they've really thought this through. Uh, but you would have to borrow elements of a naturalistic world, but yet there's still this idea of a wheel of samsara, if you will. There is this death and rebirth cycle, okay, and uh, that, in essence, must be supernatural, right? I mean, does that make sense? So how can we have elements of the supernatural without something trying to keep the rules, even if it's just um, a group of spirits that are policing the rebirth cycle. Does that make sense? Something has got to be involved with starting this process and managing this process. And it's odd that nobody thinks about how or why that is. And uh, it sounds like from what, you know, what Marsha was saying today, that to even bring this up to somebody who was caught up in Zen, uh, to them it would be nonsense. Uh, it would be something that, <laughs> you know, makes perfect sense to us. But to somebody caught up in this, uh, that would be a nonsense question. They would look at you and think, well, I really don't care. That's not something I'm interested in even thinking about. And so now we're back to what I was trying to say before. I don't understand that. My Western way of thinking cannot make sense of uh, not wanting to understand, not wanting to take apart the pieces and look at them all and put them back together and say, that's how it works, you know? So anyway, uh, this is going to be fun. It has been fun and it'll continue to be fun. So next week, we're going to talk with uh, Marsha Montenegro, again, Christian Answers for the New Age.org, and we're going to explore more of the subject of Zen Buddhism. And uh, as you can already tell, it looks like the door is wide open. Uh, sooner or later, we're going to have to jump back in and look at Tibetan Buddhism. Um, there appears to be much to explore there as well. So anyway, <laughs> with that, I love you guys. We'll see you next week. Sing it out loud.